If we to understand uh, the birth of Greek natural science and philosophy in the ancient Asiatic city of Miletus in the 6th century BC, we first need to imagine one of the most dramatic changes in the physical appearance of the environment that the ancient Greeks had ever witnessed. Much of what we call Western Turkey, approximately the whole middle third, stretching inland from the modern coast for a minimum of 30 miles, had not been created. Miletus in the 6th century BCE was a famous harbour town still surrounded on three sides, west, north and south, west, north and east, by seawater. But the dusty ruins of Miletus now stand near a small modern town called Balat, miles from the sea in any direction at all, its ancient harbour marked by a nostalgic landlocked monument. So the Milesian thinkers who began discussing the unseen causes of the world were watching their world change almost every day. In about 1000 BCE, their harbour began to silt up as the winding, meandering river Meander disgorged itself into the sea far to the northwest and heavy particles of rock and soil, alluvium, sank to the bottom of the estuary and stayed there. Every year that passed, the alluvium extended the shore towards Miletus and beyond. By the Christian era, Miletus itself was completely landlocked. Now, this process must have been about half completed when the first natural scientists were alive. They'll have mourned the inexorable annexation of their beloved sea by the stones of the Asiatic continent. They had ships in their blood and a foundational voyage in their history since their own town had been settled by colonisers from the Peloponnese. And because of Greek, as Greeks they were insatiably curious, a third of the ten defining features of the ancient Greek mind I identified in my book, Introducing the Ancient Greeks, available at all good bookshops. <laughs> it is little wonder that they inquired into the reason. And since they were watching fresh water and stones meet salt water and sand, producing new dry land every day, it's very little wonder that they became the first people in recorded history to inquire into the origins of the world exclusively in terms of natural and material causes. Earlier Greeks had seen the universe as arising first from chaos and then from the asexual and sexual reproduction of gods who resembled humans, who then created humans. And their creation myths were told in the, their equivalent of the book of Genesis, Hesiod's Theogony. Every river, every tree, every mountain had its own numinous deity who inhabited it, and every sphere of human experience belonged to the portfolio of one of the Olympian gods or those of the underworld. The only thing to do if the world changed in ways that were inconvenient or in the face of a natural catastrophe was to sacrifice to the relevant gods an attempt to propitiate them. If things went wrong, it was because a human or community had offended, for example, Poseidon, the god of earthquakes, or Demeter, the goddess of arable farming. But religions and rituals were useless in the face of the landlocking of the central part of the coast of Ionian Greece, Anatolia. Its habitants, who were collectively called the Ionians, were desperate. But they were also resourceful, open-minded and smart. 
The first scientists of Western Asia, these Ionians, proposed that the primary constituents of the universe when it arose were material substances. The first of them, whose name we know, was Thales. Thales was born in the 620s BCE. He thought that the first cosmic principle or element, the one being pushed back by new land, was water. The argument he seems to have used to support this view was that inanimate things lose water and dry out. And his student, Anaximander, then drew a map of all of the physical world the Milesians knew, and he suggested that the world they could perceive, both land and sea, which visibly limited each other, they must be surrounded by something else that was limitless and immeasurable, our Peyron, without a Peyron, our Peyron, infinite. And the third Milesian thinker of the time, Anaximenes, watched land expand and sea shrink and argued that all the constituents of the world that man can see, fire, wind, cloud, water, earth, stones, are created out of air by processes of condensation or sublimation. The differences between them are to be explained, according to him, in terms of their relative density. And in Ephesus, another city not far from Miletus, just across the bay, which also was becoming steadily cut off from the sea, a fourth thinker named Heraclitus asserted the principle that the physical universe was constantly changing and changing because of the action, he said, of a cosmic fire. Pantarei, he said, everything is in flux. So this intellectual revolution in the Myanda estuary in the early 6th century BC migrated with men from that part of the Greek world, first to its colonies in southern Italy, and in the 5th century, after the exponential rise of the Persian Empire, to classical Athens. Thales' intellectual descendants in Ionia, and then beyond, harnessed this spirit of non-religious inquiry to the investigation of the unseen structures and causes of change, not only in land, sea and sky, but also in human experience and activities. The next generations developed rational medicine, they asked about the invisible workings of our bodies. They probed the relationship between the world we see in our mind's eye and those our senses tell us are physically present. That's philosophy of science, uh, of mind um, and aesthetics, how we make decisions about right and wrong, which is ethics, how we collect information, which is epistemology, why people speak different languages and worship diverse gods, which is anthropology, why we fight one another or come together in cities, which is political science, and how the past became the present, historiography, how the world's empires came into existence. But it was that original move from mythical to matter-based explanation of the physical world which was essential to this entire intellectual revolution that followed. So who were these clever Ionians of Anatolia then? The word for Greek in modern Arabic Hebrew, Turkish, and several Indian language is not Hellene or Greek, but derived from the ancient term Ionian, Yawan. The majority of Greeks living in direct contact with the non-Greeks who stretched into the Asiatic continent, it must have felt infinitely, were indeed Ionian. They intuitively looked eastward. They felt themselves to a certain extent distinct from members of the other three Greek tribes, 
especially the Doric, which included the Spartans. That dominated the South Aegean Islands and the Southern Peloponnese. And the Ionians believed that one of their tribal ancestors was Ion, Ion, himself a son of the god Apollo. And in the Iliad, Apollo, despite his indisputably Greek credentials, is strongly associated with Troy and advanced civilizations like the Carians in Asia Minor. And Apollo was from early times associated with prophecy, with the quest to understand the unseen and the unknowable, with music and the muses, wisdom, poetry, medical arts and healing. So it's very little wonder that Ion's human descendants, the Ionians, invented rational philosophy, science, history, writing and medicine. So science and philosophy, as we understand them, were born in the Ionian Greek city of Miletus on the coast of Anatolia in the early 6th century BC. During the century before, Miletus had formed an, an alliance, the Ionian League, with many of the other Anatolian city-states over there. And under a controversial tyrant, they'd also fought a very lengthy war with Lydia and had succeeded in preserving their independence from that rich, barbarian, non-Greek land. And the peaceful relationship that emerged from that war meant intense cross-fertilisation between the neighbouring barbarian and Ionian Greek cultures, real intercultural penetration. And the Milesians had also become the richest Greeks in the region and perhaps the world. They had a very powerful navy and built a maritime empire, which is why they were so sad at losing their port. They sent out more colonies than any other city-states. They founded dozens of settlements, especially in the Black Sea, where they solved serious technological problems in transplanting their Greek way of life to much colder climates. And in the middle of the 6th century, they sadly came under the sway of the Persians when Cyrus conquered Croesus's Lydia. But for several decades, Miletus, bordered by all those old barbarian kingdoms, had been a formidable independent imperial force in the culture of the Greek-speaking world. And the three great minds which invented physics belonged to men born into this very milieu in the late 7th and early 6th centuries. It's the first time in recorded history when humans tried to explain the world about them exclusively in terms of natural causes. The concept of philosophy, which translates as love of wisdom, had not yet been given its distinctive name. And science is a later Latin concept. These men knew themselves as physiologoi, or men who discourse, that's the logos bit, about fusis, nature. We discourse about nature, we're natural scientists. Each of them also tried, tried to put his various observations together in a way that constituted a coherent, total, unified model. They're also often known as pre-Socratic thinkers, but I like to avoid that term, but it, because it implies they're only important in relation to the later thought of the Athenian Socrates, when I think in some ways they're much more important. So, what kind of man was our original physiologos Thales? Herodotus tells us he was a Milesian citizen, but with Phoenician ancestry. Others said he was fully Phoenician, but living uh, as a resident alien amongst Greeks in Miletus. And these are fascinating traditions, because the seafaring Phoenicians of the Levant 
had reached an advanced level of civilization and technology long before the Greeks, giving to the world our phonetic alphabet, huge advances in naval technology and in navigation. So even if the sort of mixed-race Thales tradition is not strictly true, it reflects an ancient intuition that Greek science and philosophy owed much to other ancient Near Eastern cultures. And it's certainly not out of the question that a Phoenician prior to Thales had suggested, as he did, that the entire perceptible world was a huge ship. Thales' most famous achievement was said to be accurately predicting a solar eclipse, perhaps the one that we know took place on the 28th of May, 585 BCE. During a battle between the Medes and the Lydians, daylight suddenly was replaced by night, but Thales had predicted that would happen. The combatants were so rattled that uh, they made peace and, and left the battlefield. Now, we don't know how Thales had calculated it, though I can promise you there have been many people speculating. Um, but it's very likely that he had access to ancient records um, of the Babylonians or Sumerians, which had indicated the periodicities, the dates. So if he had access to those, he could have started to be able to predict them. He's also supposed to have political acumen, recommending all the Ionians that they form a federation. He put his empirical study of the seasons and agriculture to commercial use as well. He was criticised by many people who said the life of intellectual inquiry was useless. We are used to this. But he was able to use his scientific knowledge to predict one winter that next summer's crop of olives was going to be particularly abundant. He had the foresight to rent all the olive presses in his area, <laughs> acquiring a complete monopoly on them. And actually, the source for this story, Aristotle, uses the word monopolia, which means single sales outlet, for the first time in world history. So Thales then charged extortionate fees for subletting them and made a fortune, <laughs> which he uh, actually used to, to help educate the city, you know, he used it for educational purposes. Aristotle says, smugly, so proving that it's easy for philosophers to be rich if they choose, but it's not what they care about. Herodotus also says there was a story that Thales had succeeded through hydro-engineering in diverting the entire river Halys so that the Lydian king could invade Cappadocia. He was almost certainly an expert, a cutting-edge expert in mathematics too, he may well have been the first to express the theorem that the angles at the base of an isosceles triangle are equal. He's said to have measured the heights of pyramids by geometrical means involving shadows and measuring sticks and ratios. But it's for his physics that he's most famous, where Hesiod saw the universe as arising from chaos and then sexual, asexual and sexual reproduction of anthropomorphic gods. Thales proposed a substance from which everything came, the cosmic first principle was water. And he almost certainly argued that the world rested on water. Um, he said that earthquakes were rockings of our boat. Now, Thales was supposed to have written a treatise on navigation by use of the stars, which we should associate with the tradition 
that he owed something to the master mariners of Phoenicia. But it also raises the question of the relationship between the Milesians' ancestral cults and their talent for natural science. The cult of Apollo was central to Ionian life. That's Ionian Apollo. Um, and Ionian colonial expansion. But over the last three decades, our understanding of early Milesian cult has been transformed by the discovery outside the ancient city walls of a very, very archaic temple of Aphrodite. Large numbers of 7th and 6th century figurines of this goddess have been found, as well as graffiti, which testify to uh, the many dedications which Milesians made to her. And Miletus exported its cults and calendars to all its Black Sea uh, colonies, in many of which Aphrodite was an important goddess, for example, at Olbia in Ukraine and at Istria, um, which is on the uh, Bulgarian-Romanian coast. Um, and she had the cult title there of Euploia, Fair Voyage, at Panticapine, which is Kerch in Crimea. She was entitled Naukratis, or Ship Power, and at Sisychus, her epithet was Pontike, of the high seas. At Miletus, she was also worshipped as Aphrogenia, or foam-born, in line with the old myth of her generation. But in many of the colonies, especially Phanagoria and at home in Miletus, she had another title, Urania, celestial, a form in which she was conceived precisely as overseeing navigation by the stars. She is the navigation goddess. So Thales, I think, may have made, uh, found the leap from Olympian theology to his water-based cosmic theory less massive than we do. Now, a follower of Thales named Anaximander believed that the first principle was something less tangible and that it was completely without limit, apeiron. Scholars dispute whether Anaximander's unlimited was made of matter or immaterial. But he almost certainly regarded it as surrounding and somehow steering the world. The word, uh, the verb is kubernan, which is ultimately relation, related even to our word government, but it means steering the ship. It was also immortal and imperishable. Uh, it was um, his infinite substance was separate from all the other elements and worlds and surrounded them. The other certain great contribution of Anaximander was the drawing, probably the first ever of a map of the whole world, presumably the regions perceptible to humans within the unlimited. And that was the world that they knew. The Milesians lived adjacent to Lydia, where in the 7th century BC, the first coins in human history were minted. This momentous advance may have been one impetus, I'm sure it was, behind the innovative thinking of the Milesians, and especially behind Anaximander's concept of the abstract, unlimited. Coins made the Greeks think. Their fable of the Phrygian king Midas, who starved to death because everything he touched turned into gold, dates from this very period and region, uh, since Phrygia also bordered on Lydia. Or take the myth of Charon, the ferryman. In Aristophanes' Frogs, the comedy first performed in 405, the god Dionysus and his slave go on an escapade to the underworld. And, of course, they meet a corpse while they're going down. He's on his way down. 
and they plead with him, please take our bags on his beer, because they're tired of carrying their luggage. But the corpse demands two drachmas, the equivalent of four days' pay for an ancient Greek labourer. And the amount was also 12 times as much as the single coin which the Greeks placed in the mouths of the dead to pay the ferryman, the obol. Now, the corpse's bartering can't help him, though, since money can't buy anything in Hades. There was an ancient popular drinking song which expressed this. Midas was blessed, but what man ever took with him to Hades more than a one obol coin? The one in your mouth. So Aristophanes' dialogue on the road to the underworld actually asks whether money can get the better of death. He's still trying to make profit on his way down. Is there a form of value which can last beyond the grave? Can you take it with you when you die? Can it make you, in a sense, immortal? At Rome, the god credited with the invention of coinage should arguably have been Vulcan, god of metal workers, but it wasn't. It was Janus, the two-faced god who inaugurates New Year, January, and looks backwards and forwards through temporal infinity. Because coins represent timeless value. It's a value that can be divided into fractions of tiny denomination, but it can be accumulated without limit. Coins make it possible to imagine amounts of money too huge to be spent in a lifetime. And this underlies its connection with physics and philosophy. Coins are different from portable chunks of bullion because the value they represent need not be the same, in fact it often isn't, as the value of the metal as a commodity. In extreme cases, coins may be entirely counterfeit. In many ancient cities, coins of small denominations were issued in bronze. Their face value bore absolutely no relation to their intrinsic worth. But the slippage between these two values, the nominal and the actual, began the minute the coin was struck. And Karl Marx described this in the first volume of Capital. The circulation of coins reduces them to a semblance of the value that they symbolise. Being gold, Goldsein in German, turns into appearing to be gold, Goldschein. Now, coins are concrete. You can touch them. They're made from matter but they signify a quantity in the self-contained world of purely abstract symbolic value. All labour and all real world objects can be measured by money and converted into it. But this new self-contained abstract world, existing exclusively in the mind, allowed the Greeks to reason and argue conceptually in terms of completely intangible ideas. Abstract notions of value, time and existence were for the first time in intellectual history divorced from the real world of subsistence, work, bodily needs and the physical environment. The values represented by coins can ceaselessly shift from the immaterial signification lent it by coins to the real use value represented in, say, bread. The experience of coinage may well have prompted the idea that the universe was in a state of constant change, conversion in and out of a currency. Anaximenes was the next Milesian material monist. That means thinker to claim there was a single substance or element from which everything comes into being. But in Anaximenes' monism, the first principle was air. 
He seems to think that all things, fire, wind, cloud, water, earth and stones, are created out of air by processes of condensation or sublimation, constantly changing their form of their currency. And the differences between them are explained in terms of their relative density. Now, a later thinker, Aristotle's botanist colleague Theophrastus, pointed out this meant that Anaximenes must have posited a new and distinctive principle of permanent change within the air-based universe, his air-based universe. But it was Heraclitus, a residence of Ephesus 50 miles away, whose name is inseparable from the idea of permanent fluctuation. Heracles famous said, and quote, is quoted by Plato in the Crassilus as saying, Pantarai, everything is in flux. He said, it's not possible to step twice into the same river because the water which constitutes it is constantly changing. Nor can one come into contact twice with a mortal who remains precisely the same state. So the same man will not be the same man and the river will not be the same river. Some scholars think that Heraclitus is the first physiologos who can seriously be called a philosopher because along with his fire-centred theory of physical cosmic order and flux, he did search for metaphysical and ethical principles. And he is the first ancient Greek thinker to invented the term, it seems, philosophos, to cover everything, lover of wisdom. His theory of permanent change helped him to explain the confusing tension between sameness and otherness in the universe. Things which are opposite at one time can you become unities at other times and other circumstances, he said. As the same things in us are living and dead, waking and sleeping, young and old, for these things having changed around are those, and those in turn having changed around are these. Moreover, the concept of constant flux has implications for the attributes of things and for how different agents perceive those attributes. The sea contains water, that is at the same time pure and polluted. For fish, it's drinkable and promotes health, but for men, it's undrinkable and causes harm. It's all relative. Heraclitus argued that all matter was transformed by being turned incessantly into fire and back again, but he actually explicitly compared this process with the ceaseless exchange of gold into goods and vice versa. The universe is in flux like our economy. It could be measured, we can measure the universe, but only by the equivalent of cosmic intellectual money. A later Christian Greek named Clement of Alexandria said that Heraclitus had drawn on the barbarian's philosophy. Perhaps Heraclitus had been stimulated, I think it's very possible, by the sanctity of fire in the religion of the Persians. Zoroastrianism. But he transformed all the ideas which contributed to his thought into exquisite Greek artistic prose, itself a new invention, which had only been made possible with the advent of writing, with the Phoenician's phonetic alphabet as adapted by the Greeks. The fragments of Heraclitus which have come down to us are, though, admittedly maddeningly obscure. The Greeks told a story in which the tragedian Euripides gave a copy of Heraclitus' book to Socrates to read. And when asked his opinion of Heraclitus' book, Socrates said, the part I understand in that is excellent, and so too, I dare say, are the parts I don't understand. 
but it needs a Delian diver to get to the bottom of it. But Heracles, Heraclitus, arcane or not, gave a great deal of thought to what was entailed in both science and philosophy, self-conscious processes of inquiry into the nature of existence, both material and in the mind. Now, the exotic figure of Pythagoras came from the Ionian island of Samos. He was held by some in antiquity to have studied with Zoroaster at Babylon himself. Others said his teacher was a priestess of Apollo at Delphi called Themistoclea or Aristoclea. And the Pythagorean school does seem to have been remarkable. It's often represented as being far more open than most ancient intellectual communities to women. But Pythagoras's true contribution is difficult to assess. He left Samos, perhaps out of distaste for the tyranny of Polycrates, settled in Croton in South Italy. His doctrines were uh, much more mystical and less sort of, as we would feel it, scientific than those of the Milesians. And the community he ran was an esoteric text which practised vegetarianism and other austerities. He may have believed in metempsychosis and reincarnation. He made, however, huge advantages, uh, advances in the relationship between music and mathematics, and the idea of harmony seems to have been important in his cosmic theories as well. He's, of course, best known for the theorem which goes under his name, that a right-angled triangle, the area of the square of the side opposite the right angle, is the same as the sum of the areas of the two squares made from the other side of the triangle. Pythagoras' theorem. But unfortunately, there's no doubt that this Greek thinker was drawing on barbarian wisdom, for the Babylonians had cracked the fundamental relationship of the so-called Pythagorean triples as early as 1800 BCE. <laughs> so you're really learning a Babylonian theorem at school. The Pythagoreans, in turn, influenced Empedocles, a Sicilian Greek whose main contribution was his cosmogonic theory of the four classical elements of earth, air, fire and water. He said there are all these. The early guys said it's one of them. He said, no, they're all four in there and they're constantly drawn together or uh, separating. And he added to earth, air, fire and water the ideas he called love and strife, gave them sort of mythical names, but these were really attraction and repulsion. But the four elements are simple, eternal and unalterable. All change is brought for Empedocles. It's brought about by these two principles of movement. He thought there was an early time when the four pure elements and the two forces coexisted at rest, all in the form of a sphere, which was somehow or other the embodiment of God. Eventually, strife, Repulsion became more powerful, dissolved the bond that held all these elementary substances together in this state of blissful, uh, divine uh, sphericity, producing the world of separate phenomena we see us around us, earth and sea, sun and moon, air, plants, animals and humans. Now, animals, plants and humans, he says, were all originally random and misshapen, but eventually more perfect forms emerged and then became individuated by sex through a prolonged process of spontaneous aggregation, making them, he said, much better adapted to the environment, which is a distinct foreshadowing of Darwin's natural selection. 
The other important group of Greek thinkers who were in the West, like Empedocles, were known as the Eleatics because they lived in Elia in South Italy. It's still called Valia, a town which had been founded by exiles from the Ionian East Greek city of Phocaea, which was in turn the mother of Mar Marseille, Massilia. They took wine industry from Massilia, uh, from Ionia to Marseille. That's how the French got wine. Um, fleeing the Persians in the 530s. And the fragments of the Iliatic Parmenides' way of truth are some of the most baffling in the history of thought. But they also show Parmenides' extraordinary importance as the founder of the study of being. What is it to be? Ontology. Tito-on. To-on is the being in Greek ontology, and the ultimate reality um, of, of existence as a distinct topic for intellectual discussion. Now, he was born in about 510, and he was able to build on his Ionian predecessor's ideas. It seems very appropriate somehow that these much-travelled mobile Phocaeans, eastern Ionians who settled further west in France and then even in Spain than any other Greeks, should claim that existence <laughs> Far from being plural and in flux, they said it was unitary, all hangs together. So all Phocaeans are somehow together. Like all the Eleatic school, Parmenides was a monist. He believed that existence was single, but he thought it was unchanging and thus could be truly known. Things cannot come into being, he said, from nothing, and they cannot pass away. There is no change or plurality. Motion must be illusory. Existence has no past and no future, it just is. Now, this bold statement is usually acknowledged as having brought Western philosophy in the technical sense into being, because it propounds a general and totalising thesis built on some of the conceptual, central conceptual facts of rational thought, truth and continuity, and uses argumentative methods such as pointing out a contradictions in a interlocutor. His argument that motion is illusory was enthusiastically defended by a younger Eleatic named Zeno in a series of colourful paradoxes and first-year philosophy students are still given these to chew on. The term paradox means a demonstration that absurd consequences can follow from extremely reasonable assumptions. The most famous is Achilles and his tortoise. Most people who think that motion exists will assume that because Achilles can run faster than the tortoise, he will overtake it if he chases it. But Zeno said that every time Achilles is just about to catch up with the tortoise, the tortoise will have a chance to progress forward very slightly. And if taken to infinity, this means that Achilles can never actually get to the place the tortoise is in before the tortoise leaves it. Uh, the second most famous uh, notorious paradox of Zeno argued that a flying arrow is not in motion, even though most people believe it is, because at any single instant it's in a specific place and therefore still. So these and other Zeno's uh, other paradoxes are harder to disprove than it might appear. And they were very much discussed in antiquity. 
And it was the first, but I love the fact that it's sort of Achilles and it's, it's arrows. It's like still using mythical, mythical imagery. It was the first of the Eliatic thinkers who moved the focus of science and philosophy towards theology, anthropology and political thought. And his name was Xenophanes. I'm very fond of Xenophanes. He's born in about 570 BCE in Colophon, one of the original cities of the Ionian League itself, actually founded by the Athenians. But he'd moved westwards like Pythagoras, and he lived for most of his life in Ionian colonies in Sicily and South Italy. And he's foundational in many respects. He was the first philosopher to use ridicule and parody as formal devices for critiquing, critiquing other thinkers' positions. We see a lot of that in Plato. He was also the first ancient Greek author who de definitively and clearly and, and self-consciously calls himself a relativist. He espouses a relativist position on everything. That is, he denied any proposition could be absolutely true, since whether it was regarded as true or false depended on the subjective outlook of the individual assessing it. Xenophanes is so sure of the difficulties involved in acquiring true knowledge, true unitary knowledge, that he's been called the first sceptic, because scepticism developed into a major ancient philosophical school. He seems to have been the first to argue systematically that there's a real and important difference between belief and knowledge, epistemology. He proposed that aiming for certain knowledge in the case of matters which are not evident was extremely hazardous. Indeed, he even said, if humans do accidentally hit on the truth about such matters, they can't, they have no way of verifying that it's the truth. But he doesn't deny it's worth trying to make progress, he says. It's still worth trying by using persistent inquiry. He used poetry to criticise the very poems which constituted the repository of Greek wisdom, those of Homer and Hesiod. He targeted the stories which these poets related about the gods doing things which men regard as disgraceful, adultery, theft and deceit. He moves to a, a very different, more remote and more disinterested notion of a, of a single disinterested deity. This is inherited by Aristotle, having little in common with the spiteful, self-indulgent, childish, glamorous Olympians. He's also learned from thinking about different ethnic groups, diverse approach to religion, that humans make God in their own image. He says, this is a quote, the Ethiopians make their gods black and blunt nose, the Thracians say theirs have blue eyes and red hair. And we can see Xenophanes' wit and use of the absurd in his references to the animal kingdom. He says, if cattle and horses and lions made images of gods, they would have them as cattle gods horse gods and lion gods. It's not that he didn't have a, a god, but his god was to be identified with the entire universe, which he said, Zeliatic, uh, sorry, he said, he's a, he's a um, monist, is a single, unchanging, motionless entity. But he said, God is not in human form. He does not speak to us directly. He does not make appearance in human circles. And this led to his most radical inferences, and these are really radical, because many subsequent Greeks who doubted the existence of the Olympians and were, and were intellectually agnostic or atheist still 
routinely participated in all the rituals of the city-state. Uh, I am an atheist, but I regularly go to my Anglican church for the sake of my local community, to take friends with people. Sorry, Xenophanes despised a particular ritual in which houses were decorated with pine branches because they were supposed to have a numinous power. He despised prophets, he, he didn't believe in miracles, he said divination didn't work. And this scientism and religious scepticism was closely bound up with his understanding of the physical properties of the universe. Some spectacular events that happen in nature, which most people believed were signs from gods, were, he said, no such thing. He was very interested in rainbows. The Greeks knew it her uh, as the goddess Iris, who would turn up and give you a message. Uh, he said, uh, no, it's just a cloud with colourful streaks. Um, when sailors were terrified by the purple lights flashing from the top of their masts, which they said was the Dioscoroi being angry with them, he said, no, it's not. He had an idea of an electrical charge. It's not quite, but he had an idea of an electrical charge after thunderstorms. He said, God did not communicate in man. We can explain all of this using empirical science. As a man from, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> colophon, it's a man from colophon, Xenophanes had seen the Lydians in action at first hand, and he certainly discussed the invention of coinage. So he really helps in my argument that that was a major impact on the intellectual revolution. Now, his interest in looking at the gods of other ethnic groups than Greeks is part of a, a movement we see at this time um, of invent inventing what we would call comparative anthropology. It's not surprising that Xenophanes was often discussed in antiquity in the same breath as Hecateus, the man who pioneered the detailed studies of the lifestyles of different peoples, always assuming a very relativist approach. Hecateus was born in Miletus in about 560. He's a little younger than Xenophanes. He much admired the work of Anaximander and made a very considerable improvement to the map associated with Anaximander. And he was able to do that because he got access to all the records of the lands that comprised the Persian Empire by the end of the 6th century BC. So it was massively more detailed and massively extended, especially to Egypt. He also included much new detail about the Black Sea areas and those beyond Scythia, and the Western Mediterranean, which the process of colonisation had made available to Greek thought. So part of his achievement was cartographic. But what seems to have absorbed him was the study of in the individual character of different ethnic groups or ethnology. By the early 5th century, therefore, the Greeks of Anatolia and South Italy and Sicily had essentially formulated the basic principles which made it possible for empirical to science to develop. The universe was made of matter. Changes in it took place because of the interaction of the elements that constituted it. Empirical observation and record keeping made it possible to predict what would happen inevitably. 
And these principles made it possible to ask the three great questions which underpin ancient and much modern philosophy. The Ionians had also called into question the idea of Olympian gods. They'd invented natural science. So this fascinating combination of circumstances made 6th century Ionian culture produce the men who articulated these fundamental questions head on without waiting for a god to tell them the answer. Their sense of affiliation with the cerebral god Apollo, their communication amongst the self, themselves along the coast of Ionia, which built on an intellectual milieu partly defined against the great monolithic kingdoms of the East, their confidence and intellectual furniture as mariners, their eastern-facing outlook, their intense contact and culture exchange with other more ancient peoples, especially the Phoenicians, the Lydians and the Persians, and their response to the invention of abstract value in the form of minted coins. In Athens, in the 5th century, a new generation of thinkers from eastern and northern Greece gathered together to push forward these intellectual discoveries and concepts. Anaxagoras, Anax is clearly, which means king, a uh, favourite Ionian prefix. Anaxagoras of the Ionian city of Clasomenae wrote a treatise which began with a description of the primeval conditions which used to exist before our universe was articulated. At that point, he says, all things were mixed together. His account of creation was summarised as saying, then mind, noose, nous, came and things. And this creative force, which Anaxagoras calls mind, started the development, he said, from a simpler state which was just order. The rest of his work attempted to explain all the varied material phenomena of the universe. And finally, no account of ancient and early Greek physics would be complete without the two first atomists. Atom means something that cannot be cut. They believed that everything was reducible to these tiny elements that could not be cut. They were men from Clasomenae and its colony Abdera, um, in further north in the Aegean, where Phoenician influence was also very important, and their names were Leucippus and Democritus. They propose that matter isn't made up of a continuous flow or stream, but an enormous number of atoms separated by empty space through which the atoms move. Atoms are solid, homogeneous, indivisible, unchangeable, but all apparent changes in matter, you know, a cork that decomposes and becomes um, uh, soil from which plants can nourish, you know, the endless exchange of atoms um, is from changes not in the atoms but in the groupings of them. There are different kinds of atoms, they said, they may differ in size and shape, and the properties of matter reflect the properties of the atoms the matter contains. So all of the universe is made up of tiny little building blocks. Now we'll be returning to Abdera in my next lecture which is going to be on ancient medicine. For Democritus was fascinated by the works of doctors and surgeons and another crucial contributory factor in the Ionian Revolution was the development of medicine. Medical professionals still take the oath attributed to the ancient Greek doctor Hippocrates, which is preserved along with a group of the 70 or so treatises which were transmitted under his name. 
Um, he seems to have run basically a medical school on the island of Kos, uh, and his brilliance needs to be understood as the consummation of many decades of both uh, communication with the physicists and accumulated medical practice and accumulated law. So in the next lecture, we'll be switching from the primary focus, our primary focus from the constitution of the physical world to Hippocrates' empirical study of the workings of the human body. Thank you.